So welcome to We All Go A Little Mad Sometimes, the true crime and assorted oddities podcast with your host Poncho, where I have a face for podcast and a passion for true crime. Coming to you live on tape from the beautiful southeastern United States of America, where I'm sitting in here with my little studio with the giant assassin beetle or stink bug walking around on my microphone at the moment. So it's been a while since I put out my last podcast. And I got to tell you, <laughs> work work is really starting to get interfere with my uh, with my hobbies. But this is a hobby, and I do it when I can. So I'd like to apologize to both of my regular listeners for this taking so long to get out. But it is what it is. So what I'm going to do since we, it's been a while since I put the last podcast out, I think I'm going to, you know, I started the Ed Gein series. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to just back up to the beginning of that and take it from there. So if you heard it recently, just um, fast forward 12 minutes or so and you'll be caught up to the newer part. So I think this, I'm going to do this part here. Uh, I'll put this out now and then in a couple of days I'll put the second part of it out because it's going to be more than just one, one podcast episode. So I'll go ahead and back this thing up. I'll back this thing up. I'll back it up and uh, get rid of this stink bug off my microphone. And uh, we'll learn a little bit about Eddie Gein. Let them see what kind of a person I am. I'm not even going to swat that fly. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, she wouldn't even harm a fly. So this is going to be the last installment of Tomb Raiders. I'm not even sure if I mentioned that in the last episode. I may have edited it out. I don't know. But we've been doing this series on Tomb Raiders. We did uh, Char- the guys who stole Charlie Chaplin and asked for a ransom. We did uh, Burke and Hare, the guys that were supposed to be Tomb Raiders but are actually serial killers. And then we did uh, Anatoly Moskvin, the doll maker in Russia. This is going to be the final installment of Tomb Raiders, and it's going to kind of morph into something I'm going to call the American Original Series, which is, this series is people who did, cra- I mean, crazy things, but unprecedented crimes. They had, I mean, they were just, no, they are original. That's really the only way I know how to put it. <laughs> and uh, this guy's definitely the perfect segue for that. And today we're talking about the one and only Ed Gein, in my opinion, the most fascinating criminal of all time. And um, my sources for this are the usual, the Wikipedia, Murderpedia, and several books. Harold Schechter did a book called Deviant in 1989, and it is absolutely fantastic. I highly recommend it. I have it on Audible. Thinking about, he did this in 1989. It was before the internet got real big. So he had to do a lot of this by research and legwork and all. And it's just, it's an amazing book with an amazing amount of detail and I recommend it to anybody who's interested in this kind of thing and also I'm going to get this out of the way right right from the get-go later on when he was going through his trials and and all he had a short a brief press press conference and the press asked him the proper pronunciation of his name and he said well some say Gein he said we or I have always said Gein he said I don't know it's about 50 50 so I'm going to call him Gein um, all you German aficionados, 
Don't email me about it. If you want to email me something, email me a Bigfoot story, but don't email me on the proper pronunciation of his name because that's the way he pronounces it. So I guess we're going to start right in a kind of in the middle when Ed's psychosis started to come to the light for the community of Plainfield, Wisconsin. So this, this takes place in Plainfield, Wisconsin. For those of you that don't know, I'm assuming most of you know if you're a true crime junkie like I am who Ed Gein is. For those that don't know, this takes place in uh, 1957, a very, very rural part of Wisconsin. No big towns nearby. It's just a, a barren landscape and a really, really rough environment to be in. Uh, the farming was hard. The living was hard. And again, this is in the 50s when they didn't have the same kind of things that we have now. So on uh, November 17th, 1957, uh, Frank Warden, he was a, a town fire chief and uh, Washara County Sheriff's Deputy, Washara County is where the town of Plainfield is at. Uh, he returned from the woods on opening day of deer season. He came back into town and went to Mashinsky Service Station is where they do the check-in on the, they do the deer check-ins. When somebody shoots a deer, it has to be weighed in and counted. The town also had a big buck contest and he had a question because Mashinsky ran the, the uh, contest so uh, he went into the station to ask him a question and Mashinsky asked if uh, Frank's mother had decided to close the store for the day and to go deer hunting herself and he told uh, he told Frank that he saw the warden this was a uh, sorry this is warden's hardware store it was across the street from the service station and he saw the warden hardware truck leave earlier in the day and since then the store had been locked up and hadn't seen his mother and uh so uh, frank went across the street and to take a look the hardware store was was owned and ran primarily by his mother bernice and he went over there to look and the doors were all locked up and went around back and sure enough the panel truck was gone and the doors were locked but the lights were on inside so realizing he didn't have his store key on him. He ran home to get his key, came back to the store. Upon entering the store, he immediately knew something was wrong. There was a big red streak of red on the floor. The deputy recognized it as blood. And so he headed to the phone to call for help. Frank also noticed that the cash register was missing. Frank got on the phone and he dialed the Washara County Sheriff, Art Schley. Schley hearing the concern in his deputy's voice uh, he, in turn, contacted Arnie Fritz, who is his chief deputy, and the pair headed to Plainfield from their office in Watoma, about 15 miles away, I guess. When the two arrived, they walked in the back door of the store. Frank looked up and said, he's done something to her. And who asked Fritz? Eddie Gein responded, Frank. He's been hanging around here pestering my mother. He held up a receipt showing that Eddie Gein was in the store earlier and had bought some antifreeze. Now, earlier that same day, before this happened, the local farmer and timber man named Elmo Eek had shot a deer and the deer fell on Eddie Gein's property. Elmo strapped the deer to his, the hood of his vehicle and headed into Plainfield. And on the way, he just happened to pass Eddie Gein driving in the other direction. And he waved to Eddie, and Eddie just flung up his hand and waved and, and kind of flew by, which uh, Elmo thought that was extremely unusual for Eddie. 
because usually Eddie drove so slow you could outrun him on a bicycle. But anyway, a little bit later on, Elmo felt bad because Eddie hated for people to hunt on his property. And uh, he wasn't feeling right about the whole situation. He decided he was going to go back to Eddie's and apologize about the deer. And he got to Eddie's house, and when he pulled up in the yard, Eddie was changing the tires on his car. He was taking off the snow tires and putting on regular tires. Now, for those of you who don't know, back in the day anyway, I don't know if they still do it or not because I don't live up north anymore, but I grew up up north, and my dad used to, at Thanksgiving, put snow tires on the car, and then he had to take them off at Easter. Eddie was taking off the snow tires and putting on his regular tires, which, um, you know, it's kind of an odd thing to do. Elmo thought it was odd anyway, and uh, especially with, with snow on the ground and winter just beginning. But, you know, Eddie was uh, known as the local oddball, so he hadn't really attached too much to it. So the two chit-chatted for a little bit, and Elmo left Eddie to his business. And later on that afternoon, Eddie had another visitor, and uh, he came out of the house to greet them in the yard. And it was Eddie's neighbor, Bob Hill, and his sister, Darlene, came to ask Eddie. said their car wouldn't start if he would take him into town to get a, a car battery. And Eddie, always willing to help out his neighbors, uh, said sure. But his hands were all covered with blood from cleaning the deer is what he told the teens. He said, um, let me get washed up and I'll be right out. So they went into town and Eddie helped uh, Bob install a battery in the car. And Bob's mother, Irene Hill, asked Eddie to stay for dinner since he had done them such a huge favor. And Eddie, who had a very busy day, was grateful for the invite. And Irene set out a a hearty dinner of pork chops and taters and macaroni and cheese and pickles and coffee and cookies and Eddie dug in and uh, after they finished up dinner um, Eddie was sitting on the couch with the uh, watching TV and in the room messing around with the younger kids uh, when the, the Hills son-in-law came in and uh, asked if uh, they knew what was going on in town there seemed to be police everywhere and there's some kind of commotion going on he said, well, somebody mentioned something about Bernice Warden had gone missing. So Bob Hill, being a 16-year-old teenager, he had to go see what was going on. He wanted to see what was going on in town. He had to know. He asked Eddie if Eddie would, would drive him into town. Eddie said, sure, I'd be happy to take you into town. So at the same time, Eddie was enjoying dinner back in Plainfield. Sheriff Art Schley and Arnie Fritz had called for help. So other sh uh, sheriffs from other communities, deputies, patrol officers, all showed up at the Plain Plainfield Hardware Store. And by 7 p.m., there was quite a lot of activity at the store. There's uh, uh, sheriffs and officers from, from all over, like I said. I had uh, Officer Dan Chase from right there in Plainfield, uh, Deputy Pokespees, uh, Deputy uh, Buck Bannerman, uh, Marshal Leon Speck Murdy, Sheriffs Wynerski, Searles, and Artie, and also uh, Captain Lloyd Schoforster from the Greene County uh, Sheriff's Department, and uh, along with um, Sheriff Schley and Arnie Fritz. So there is there is quite uh, quite a bit of uh, experienced people there. So they all kind of knocked their heads together and decided the first thing they needed to do is to find Eddie Gein. So back at the Hills House. Eddie and young Bob decided they were going to head into town and they went to get in Eddie's car and Bob's uh, mother Irene 
had said goodbye to Eddie, and they ran a they ran a, a grocery store, and she headed over to the grocery store to relieve her husband Lester, who was working the store while everyone else ate dinner. And Irene wasn't there long when two men came in, Officer Dan Chase and Deputy Poke Spees, asking for Eddie. And uh, Irene told the men that uh, Eddie was sitting in the driveway and left, unless he's already left. She explained that Eddie was uh, going to take her son into town to see what was going on. And the two men went to her driveway, and sure enough, Eddie's car was still sitting there running with the two fellas inside. And uh, Chase, Dan Chase, tapped on the window. And Eddie rolled the window down, and uh, Dan Chase said, Eddie, I'd like to talk to you. And Eddie readily cooperated and went and got and sat down in the squad car. So Chase asked Eddie so that, to tell me the events of the day from the time you woke up until right now. And Eddie went through the whole day, including when he visited Warden's hardware store. After Eddie finished the story, Chase asked him to run through it again, but this time start from where he visited Warden's hardware store. Eddie ran through his events again. And when he finished, Chase spoke up and said, Now, Eddie, you didn't tell the same story come through there that second time. And Eddie looked up and blinked and said, Somebody framed me. Framed you for what? asked Chase. Eddie said, For Mrs. Warden. Chase leaned in and said, What about Mrs. Warden? Well, she's dead, ain't she? Dead, exclaimed Chase. How do you know she's dead? Well, Eddie said, Well, I heard them talk about it. Well, Chase was now convinced that something was very wrong, and he informed Eddie that he was being held as a suspect for the robbery at Warden's Hardware Store. Uh, Chase radioed uh, Sheriff Schley and, and told him that the suspect was in custody, and at that time he pulled out uh, pulled the squad car out of the Hills yard, leaving the Hills in total bewilderment. So back in Plainfield... The law enforcement officers are now anxious to find Mrs. Warden. And the most logical place to start looking was at Eddie Gein's house. Sheriff Archley and uh, Captain Lloyd Schulforster uh, got in the Archley's car and they headed west out of town towards the Gein farm. So while they're driving out to the Gein farm, let me get y'all caught up on Eddie and his family. And if you think your family's messed up, wait till you hear this. To say Eddie grew up in a very challenging environment is like saying that the Beatles were a mildly successful rock and roll band. His parents were a, a toxic pair, to put it mildly. But Eddie was born in La Crosse, Wisconsin on August 27, 1906. His older brother, Henry, was four years older than him. Depends on what you read. I read four years, five years. But he was older than Eddie, and... Eddie's parents, Augusta and George, ran a small but successful grocery store in La Crosse. That his mom, Augusta, she was she was tough. She was a tough, hard-working, no-nonsense, hardcore, if not fanatically, uh, religious woman who detested other women. She referred to them as harlots, and they were evil horrors and all this kind of thing. And she also didn't have anything to do with anybody who wasn't a Lutheran and she really hated her husband George and George Eddie's father was he was a hapless weak drunkard who jumped from job to job to job to job and um, couldn't hardly support his family so Augusta decided that 
Well, what, what, what George needs is he needs his own business. So they opened this grocery store. And in the beginning, it was listed that, that George was the proprietor of this business. And two years later, it was listed uh, Augusta was the proprietor and George was the clerk. So, uh, and George was, I guess, he was so bad. <laughs> he was so bad at everything. He even got demoted in his own business. And the only thing that um, the records show that he was successful at was uh, he was Eddie's father. He created a authentic American monster. So with Augusta running the store um, and George being the clerk, he stocked shelves and made deliveries and things like that. And Augusta kept an eye on every penny. And eventually she saved, they saved uh, quite a bit of money and decided that they were going to move. She was going to wanted to move her family out of lacrosse out of the city of sin and get them into a more wholesome environment so they moved to a a farm in um, camp douglas wisconsin and they stayed on this farm for it was probably a little less than a year not sure why but they found another farm for sale a 195 acre farm in plainfield wisconsin and this farm, when they bought it, apparently was very nice at the time. It had a nice two-story house on it, uh, plenty of uh, outbuildings, a, a tool and equipment sheds, a woodshed, a summer kitchen, um, plenty of, of usable farmland. The only problem was is they weren't farmers. And at the time, this property and many other properties in the area, the ground was horrible. It was like a peach-colored sand and it wouldn't wouldn't produce much I, I guess she didn't understand what she was buying because they weren't farmers they were merchants if you look on the aerial views on google now it looks like the farmers do pretty well in today's world but in 1914 it was a lot different so they moved into this house and of course augusta kept the place immaculate and uh, plainfield at the time had quite a few churches but it didn't have a lutheran church so then and there, of course, Augusta had no use for the town of Plainfield, and she decided she was going to take care of the boys' religious training. But to say Augusta was domineering is an understatement. She wanted her boys out of the city of sin and plopped them down in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, away from family, away from friends, in the middle of nowhere in 1914. She had decided they were going to be farmers, and there they were, stuck on the windswept plains in a part of Wisconsin where weeds won't hardly grow, where farmers had uh, acres of onion and potato farms, and the, the potatoes that they produced were of such inferior quality that they were often just carted off to the starch factory. So moving to an environment like this with a 7- and 11-year-old and a borderline useless husband I guess maybe she figured that getting them out of this, the city of sin uh, where she had them to herself and she had her undivided attention and six miles from the nearest town at the time where there was more horse and buggy travel and less automobile travel where they had no phones, no electric, no indoor plumbing and their closest neighbor was a half a mile away. The boys were trapped with this woman with a serious warped interpretation of the Bible. And she would preach to the boys that, from the, the from the book of Revelations and beat it in their heads that all women were whores and tramps and dirty, sin-infested creatures, except her, of course. 
Of course, I'm sure she kept them from reading things like uh, Proverbs 21:19 is better to live in the desert than with a quarrelsome, nagging wife. And she also taught them things like it's, I don't know how to say this nicely, but it's better to take care of your own, a bit, own business than to bed down with a woman. And as bad as Augusta didn't want to, she had to let her boys go to school. And there was no record of Henry having any issues in school or around the community. However, um, both boys were kept close by Augusta. Augusta's issues with Eddie, it was it was different, it was odd. And I've seen this before in other serial killers that I read about, which I don't think Eddie Gein was really a serial killer per se, but he may have been. Her, her issue with Eddie was that she really, really wanted a girl. And when Eddie was born, she was highly disappointed and she felt slighted by God. But if, you know, God wanted her... Uh, to have another boy, then um, she would not let him grow up to be a, a sweating, swearing beast of a man. And um, it showed when Eddie got to school, he was he was obviously different than all the other boys. He was very sensitive, almost uh, had like fe uh, feminine like qualities to him. If the other boys would be talking about sex, Eddie would uh, blush and kind of back out of the conversation. He would laugh at really inappropriate times, like if they were talking, um, something bad happened to somebody, and he would kind of giggle about it, and people thought that was odd. And he had another unusual quality was that he, he cried, and, and he cried very easily. If someone said, just teased him a little bit, you know, boys being boys, if they teased him a little bit, he would cry. And, you know, I mean, this was, this is not 2014, this is 1914, and it's a totally different world then. And if Eddie made a friend at school, went home and, and told his mom about it, and she'd have a complete meltdown and yell at him, and how could you do such a thing? His parents are of questionable, questionable character. And his mother, oh, she is a woman of questionable virtue and all this stuff and make Eddie feel horrible just for making a friend at school. So Eddie was essentially trapped. There was just bone crushing isolation with a borderline crazy mother, a weak, ineffective father that wouldn't stand up for his sons to allow them to be boys in a place where the brutal winters would keep them indoors for days and days on end. Even when they got to go outside, there was nowhere to go. It was an inescapable madhouse. So Eddie and Henry were close growing up. You know, they did give, they, they fished together, hunted together, and worked on the farm together. Even though the farm hardly produced enough to feed the family, let alone turn a profit. At 16, uh, Eddie finished school and then just went and worked on the farm with Henry. And the boys did the best they could with what they had to work with. But, you know, Augusta worked also. She was, of course, she was the boss. She's the head of the house. George, he just retreated further into the bottle and didn't seem to be good for anything but uh, liquor consumption and, and hateful behavior. And the boys, well, both were kind of on the slight side. They were kind of small fellows, but they were too big for beating. But George lashed out at him repeatedly. And so by the end of the 1930s, the both of the boys were still living at home because, uh, you know, Augusta had uh, brainwashed them that they weren't, um, they shouldn't have anything to do with getting married or having a girlfriend. So they were both still living at home. By the, by the late 30s, George was in bad shape. To this point, his life had been just a giant disaster from beginning to end. 
as a youngster when when he was just a baby his um, parents lived in a small town outside of lacrosse wisconsin and his parents and his older sister were um, they had left george behind and they were going into town on a buggy and at the time the mississippi river was rising and swept the buggy away so George's parents and his older sister died when he was just a baby. He was raised by his dour, loveless, maternal grandparents. And, I mean, George's life, he, it was hard. Uh, I'm not going to deny that. And he had this uh, tough upbringing. And then he met Augusta. So it probably, I don't know if it got worse or stayed the same. But anyway, it wasn't good. And by 1940, George's difficult life, catastrophic marriage, and 40-plus years of heavy alcohol abuse. Um, George Gein dies at the age of 66 on, of all days, April 1st, 1940, the April Fool's Day. So the boys now, uh, Henry was 38 and Eddie was 34, still under the sway of Augusta. But they did start to seek employment outside of the house, mostly Henry. Um, he did quite a bit outside of the house worked for uh, contractors and worked on a line crew and he did a bunch of different things. Road building crew, I believe. Uh, both were considered reliable uh, and good workers, but Henry was thought of as the, the, the harder worker of the two. And Henry tried to make friends. He tried to talk to girls, and but nothing ever really worked for him. Although it was rumored that Henry had been seeing a divorced mother or two and, of course, this would have totally made Augusta have an aneurysm if she became aware of this. But, you know, Henry, Henry had a mind of his own. He could think for himself. And um, he thought Eddie and Augusta's relationship was, was odd and never really confronted Augusta about it. But he had mentioned it to Eddie that things looked weird between the two of them. And uh, so, I mean, the only speculation on the private conversations. Who knows what was really said. But on May 16th, 1944, Henry and Eddie were uh, burning vegetation on the farm. And according to Eddie, a strong wind came up and the fire started to burn out of control. And Ed lost track of his brother and um, went for help to try and find Henry. And when the deputies and rescue and all came, Eddie led them right to Henry's body. And they asked Eddie about that and said, you know, what's up with that, Eddie? And uh, Eddie just shrugged and said, yeah, it's funny how that works, huh? And the facts of this situation were pretty much this. Uh, Eddie brought them directly to Henry. Henry was laying in a burnt area, but his clothes were not burnt. They were soot covered, but they weren't burnt. And he didn't seem to have any major injuries on him except that he had two bruise marks or a couple of bruise marks on the back of his head so at the time um you know it wasn't unusual for somebody in their 40s to um you know work themselves to death on their farm so they chalked it up to um henry having a bad heart and later on when things went south for eddie's people started to think something different actually happened and maybe we'll come across that later. So the Gein family had another funeral and they uh, buried Henry. And now Eddie had Augusta all to himself. Not for long though. Shortly after Henry's death, Augusta began to feel faint and weak and bad to the point where she asked Eddie to take her to the doctor. Eddie put her in the truck and drove her to the hospital in Wild Rose. 
by the time they arrived, Augusta was so bad off that they had to take her inside in a, with a wheelchair. Eddie sat in a waiting room with his hat in his hand, waiting for word on his mother's condition. When the doctor emerged, he told Eddie, Eddie, your mother's had a stroke. Eddie was crushed. During her stay at the hospital, Eddie stayed right by her side for as long as the staff would allow him to be there. And after a time, she was discharged. Eddie took her home and put her to bed. And as she lay there in bed, frail and weak, in Eddie's mind, Augusta had always been a pillar of strength. She ran the household, the business, she ran the farm. Not only kept the house clean, but did a man's share of work on the farm. To Eddie, she was larger than life, but now she needed him. In the nearly 30 years that they lived on the farm, the farm barely produced enough to feed the family, let alone turn a profit. The house was exactly the way it was in 1914. They were unable to make one improvement to the place. The house was starting to deteriorate, the paint was peeling, and the patched roof kept the elements off of them. So, Eddie sold off an 80-acre piece that belonged to his brother Henry, and for the next year, he took care of Augusta, took care of all of her needs. At night, he would read the Bible to her by lamplight. But by mid-1945, Augusta had begun to recover, and little by little, she was able to get around. Eddie thought his mother, finally, would be grateful for all that he had done for her to show a little love, but no, she never even acknowledged it. So according to Eddie, in the fall, heading into the winter of 1945, Augusta told Eddie they needed fodder for the cows, and to arrange a meeting with a surly farmer named Smith, to buy the needed food for the cows. When Eddie and Augusta arrived at Smith's farm, of course Augusta was going to oversee the transaction because Eddie couldn't possibly do it by himself. Smith was a quarrelsome, well he was a jerk to be honest with you, was in the yard beating a puppy with a stick. A woman came out of the house yelling at him, to, uh, pleading with him to stop. And it was a chaotic scene and a bad situation. But shortly after that meeting, Augusta suffered another stroke, and according to Eddie, this caused Augusta's stroke. And it wasn't the beating of a little defenseless puppy that upset Augusta. It was the woman. Smith's harlot, she called her. They weren't married, and the woman had no business being there. And I'm thinking, are you serious? She's had a stroke and was out of commission for a year. She never even talked to her neighbors, hasn't done anything in the community. How does she know if the woman was, if they were married or not married? And besides that, it's none of her damn business. But that's neither here nor there. At this point, she had another stroke and her health began to deteriorate rapidly. And on December 29th, 1945, Augusta died at the age of 67. Her effect on the community was obvious. When Henry died, it was front page news. Even when George died, he had a decent write-up in the paper and a, and, a, and a fine obituary was written of him. Augusta's obituary read something like this, that Augusta Gein died, age 67, survived by her son, Edward, that resides on a family farm west of here. This larger than life, holier than thou, better than you, snob, had died and no one cared. Eddie, however, was crushed. At her funeral, Eddie sat there crying and wailing like a little kid who just lost his mommy. Tears and snot all over his face. It was probably a good thing none of the neighbors came to the funeral to see him in that state. But both of the other people that are attended the funeral service were believed to be her brothers. 
Eddie had lost the love of his life, and now he was completely alone. Now Eddie continued on in his own little world, by himself. The townspeople always thought uh, Eddie was a little odd, but harmless. He was a little man, with that little weird grin plastered on his face all the time. But they trusted him to do odd jobs or handyman things around the house for them. He was also used as a babysitter. He related well to children, and um, he would have fun with them when he babysat. They'd have snowball fights in the winter, and he'd buy them ice cream in the summer, and he'd tell them stories about South Seas headhunters, and the kids loved Eddie. Eddie, however, had trouble dealing with adults. Eddie was a prolific reader and read books about the South Sea headhunters and cannibals, and the resurrectionist stories from old England he loved, and he loved the dime store crime novels, the magazines with the borderline pornographic uh, covers on them. <laughs> he also read a lot of books about um, the Nazi war criminals like uh, Ilse Koch and the, the Bitch of Buchenwald and other Nazi war crimes. At this point, Eddie's appearance started to rapidly decline, as well as the farm. He sold off the cows to pay for Augusta's funeral and completely stopped working the place. In the daytime, he did odd jobs. At nighttime, he would just go in the house, put a little bit of wood in his little wood stove, make himself supper from a can of pork and beans, heat the can right on his little wood stove, and read these crazy books that he loved to read with no light, no heating system, no indoor plumbing, just Eddie with an oil lamp and a little wood heater. So we're going to shift gears real quick here and we're going to talk about another uh, very colorful resident of the Plainfield area. Mary Hogan. Mary Hogan ran a local beer joint in Pine Grove a few miles west of Plainfield. She was a body, tough-talking, rather large woman with a German accent the locals liked to call her Bloody Mary. No one knew too much about Mary except that she was thought to have come from Chicago and a small-town rumor mill of that area uh, thought she had um, been a madam there. They know she was twice divorced and she was, and she was a little bit on the tough side, but the locals enjoyed her tough but jovial ways. On December 8th, 1954, a local farmer stopped into Mary's Tavern to pick up some ice cream for his daughter and found the place empty. He also noticed a big red streak of blood on the floor. He went to a nearby farm and called the president of the town of Pine Grove and then the police. Upon inspection of the scene, the police found the blood-stained floor and a used 32 caliber Mauser cartridge. Mary was, to use the words of a, of a local Wisconsinite, uh, Mary couldn't be found to go to heck for. Nobody knew where Mary was. By this time, Eddie had pretty well retreated into his own world of isolation. He did get out some. He did babysit. And he worked a little for the county, plowing snow in the winter or clearing brush in the summer. And Eddie was also used on threshing crews. But when a farmer put together a threshing crew to harvest wheat, let's say, it was a tough labor-intensive job and Eddie was often a member of the crew. His slight, wiry frame didn't really have any bearing on his work skills. Eddie was a hard worker. During the day, the farmer's wife would feed the crew, and although Eddie was polite and never spoke out of turn or used foul language, he would often 
leer at them with his, his weird little grin and it would often make the women uncomfortable. Still, they felt kind of sad for the lonely little bachelor. The guys, on the other hand, they, they liked to mess with Eddie a little bit. Nothing too bad, but they still teased him. Like, for instance, putting a smoke bomb in his truck while he was driving off and laugh at him when he came tumbling out of the truck thinking his truck was on fire. But guys do that sort of thing. That uh, old farmer tell me one time that they used to go, him and several of his friends would go to uh, South Carolina to buy dynamite to take stumps out of their field. Of course, this was 50 years ago. But they they go to South Carolina and buy dynamite. And one time on the trip back, one of the guys had fallen asleep in the back seat of the car. So they got a stick of dynamite out. And of course, dynamite doesn't explode unless you have a blasting cap on it. So they just took the stick of dynamite, whittled out a little spot, stuck the fuse in it, lit the fuse and put it in the guy's lap and then woke him up. And he woke up to a stick of dynamite burning in his lap and he near about shit his pants. But guys do stuff like that. And um, sometimes it's kind of funny. But anyway, one, 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 one afternoon after they finished their work on the, the threshing crew and they were out having a beer, um, one, of the, one of the farmers, Elmo Eek, uh, was kind of teasing Eddie, saying, Eddie, you know, if you'd, if you'd sweet-talked uh, Mary Hogan a little bit, uh, she'd be at home cooking for you right now instead of, instead of missing. And uh, Eddie kind of looked up with that weird grin of his and said, well, she's not missing. She's down at the house right now. Yeah, I went to her and uh, picked her up in my pickup truck and took her home. And they all kind of laughed at him and said, yeah, Eddie, sure, sure you did. And over the next few years, Eddie would often make that joke when the subject of Mary Hogan came up. But for the next few years, this was Eddie's life, and it was lonely, and it was sad. But anyway, this brings us up to November 1957, when Eddie was confronted by the police. So uh, Sheriff Slay and uh, Captain Lloyd Schoforster were heading back to Eddie's house and searching for uh, Bernice Warden. When they got there, the Geen farm, it looked nearly abandoned. When they pulled up, you could see grass and weeds kind of poking up through the snow. Farm machinery was laying around. It was dark and gloomy. There was no lights. There certainly wasn't any street lights then. There was absolutely no sign of life anywhere. And it was a bitter cold night, and the two guys got out of their vehicle and walked around the house looking for a way to get in. And it was all locked up. And they went around back and came across the woodshed or summer kitchen. And the door had just a little flimsy little latch on it. And Schoforster pushed open the door. And the men went inside and started looking around. And there was it was a cluttered mess. There was cardboard boxes and crap laying on the floor. And uh, mattresses and all kinds of mess in there. Schoforster was looking for a way to get into the main part of the house. Sheriff Slay was kind of looking around. And he felt something brush up against his back. And when he turned around and, sh and shined his flashlight on it, he was absolutely stunned at what he saw. Hanging there from the rafters by its feet was a human body gutted like a deer, just hanging there, decapitated. And it was the body of a woman. And Sheriff Schley uttered out, my God, there she is. And the two men looked at it with their flashlights on it trying to comprehend what they're looking at and Schley took off out of the building out into the snow and started vomiting. Schoforster 
kind of staggered out behind them. The two men kind of gathered themselves up and kind of shook it off, knowing they had to go back inside. Show Forster made a call on the car radio saying that they had found the body of Mrs. Warden at the Gein farm. And the two men went back into the building. As I said, the floor was littered with garbage and junk. And they examined the room and started to examine the body hanging there. And I'm going to get into a little bit. I don't like gory details, but I'm going to get into some of the details because it's, it's the story and it's a true crime podcast. So I'm going to go through some of it as, as clean as humanly possible, I guess you could say. So as the men examined the body, they looked up and they saw that it was fastened to the, the rafters. What he did was he took a sharpened stick and pushed it through the soft part of the ankle above the above the heel, but between the the bone and the hamstring and tied ropes around it and tied it to the rafters and then also had ropes tied around her wrists. So since she's hanging upside down, her wrists or her arms were down by her sides. Those ropes were also tied to the rafters. And it looked like a block and tackle had been used to, to hoist her up into that position. It was apparent that Eddie had also gone deer hunting. By this time, the other officers had started to show up. With the exception of Sheriff Schley, all these guys were had a lot of experience. You know, Sheriff Schley was, he'd only been a sheriff for six weeks. But all the guys around him were experienced officers had they they'd seen some horrific sights in their careers as 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 lawmen they you know hunting accidents car accidents farm accidents fires all that sort of thing and all of them were completely stunned at the sight of bernie's warden her dressed out corpse i should say dressed out headless corpse was hanging there like a slaughtered game animal and they knew the next step was had to go into the house dirty didn't even come close to the description of the inside of eddie's house when the police opened the door they went inside the kitchen they went in the kitchen first and it was just a complete jumble of garbage and used cartons and tin cans and oatmeal boxes and bags newspapers and magazines and all kinds of crap laying around on the floor with covered in rodent droppings and as they kind of started getting their way in they shone their lights around and right there the first thing they came across was the wash it was a wash basin and it was full of sand and there was a shelf above it and on the shelf was a a set of old yellowed dentures alongside a, a coffee can full of used chewing gum and one of the officers on the other side of the kitchen was shining his light around and saw on top of the wood stove in the kitchen it was an unusual looking bowl and when he picked it up and examined it he realized it was a skull cap it had been cut off the top of a human skull other officers kind of made their way into eddie's bedroom which was right next to the kitchen and at first glance they when they went in they shined their lights on eddie's bed and and on the bedpost on either side of the bed were human skulls Right from the get-go, it was like a glimpse into hell, and they were, haven't even started good yet. As the investigators looked around, they started finding other bits and pieces of, of human body parts. One of the officers noticed that it was a, there was a chair sitting there that had been reupholstered, recovered. And at close examination, it was reupholstered with strips, what turned out to be human skin. 
and the, the strips even had little little beads of, of, of fat on the, the back of the skin. They also found uh, leggings that were skin from human legs. Um, the next thing they found was the, the full upper torso of a woman's body with the skin with the breast that's still attached. And with, with straps on the back so it, like it could be worn. It later became known as the mammary vest. They found a shade pool with human lips attached to it. They also found other things made from human skin. Uh, lampshades, waste paper basket, bracelets. Well, Eddie's house had no electricity. So a portable generator was brought in. And with better lighting conditions, the investigators continued searching. As they got better lighting in the house, they started noticing other things too, like um, there was a shelf with three electric radios on it, but Eddie didn't have any electricity. And there was one of those little placards in the kitchen that said, in case of emergency, call 505, but Eddie didn't have a phone. As they looked around, they found that Eddie had a mask collection, and it, they found this mask collection to be particularly disturbing. The, the masks were peeled off human heads with no eyes of course but the head it still had the hair attached and eddie had four of these masks stuffed with paper and hanging on the wall in his bedroom and there was and there was more um alan willimoski the crime lab specialist he as he was going through part of the kitchen he found a shoebox and he picked up the shoebox and when he opened the shoebox he found the, the box contained a collection of female genitalia the one on top was very fresh and as he inspected them i can't imagine being in this guy's shoes but he has usually he was inspecting them and they, they all had little like crystals on them and he realized that they were salted that they had put salt on them you know some of them were older and shriveled all up and one of them was painted silver and it had a little red bow on it and there was actually there was nine vulvas in the box all together and i'm not making any of this up i promise so while all this was going on inside the house, outside of the house, reporters started to gather. Sheriff Slay went out and told the reporters what was going on inside, and he said it was just terrible. He didn't elaborate on anything other than uh, Gein was being held for the murder of Bernice Warden, and that was it, and that's, he left it at that. But back inside the house, uh, Deputy Arnie Fritz was looking through um, some bags behind the kitchen door when he opened up one of the bags and looked inside and he saw something in there and he kind of reflexively just kind of reached in and grabbed it and pulled it out and when he pulled it out it was one of eddie's masks and he kind of held it up to the light to look at it and one of the officers standing behind him said oh my god that's mary hogan the lady who'd been missing for th the last three years and they couldn't find her anywhere i guess the mystery had been solved and like Eddie said, he, he had her down at the house. She was down at the house right now. And he was like, just like he said. And they laughed at him. So in addition to the other things the officers had found, they also found a belt made out of human nipples, four noses, and scraps of human flesh and bones. And this was just a kitchen and a bedroom. They found Bernie's Warden's heart in a bag in front of the wood stove and found her entrails wrapped in newspaper and stuffed inside a jacket 
So now two officers had gone back inside the summer kitchen or woodshed and started searching for more in there. And in the corner, there was two old, stained, nasty mattresses. They lifted the top mattress, and there was a burlap sack, and steam was kind of rising up from the sack. When they opened it up, they found uh, Bernice Warden's head inside a burlap sack. And if this wasn't bad enough, Eddie had taken two tenpenny nails and bent them and shoved them into Bernice Warden's ears with a strap tied between them as if he planned to hang this thing up in his bedroom like a trophy, like a ten-point deer. But back inside the main part of the house, the investigators had only gone through the kitchen and the bedroom. Here Eddie had this big farmhouse, but all he used was the kitchen and the bedroom. He had a wood stove in the kitchen and a wood stove in his bedroom, and the rest of the house was boarded off. So after spending the last few hours going through Eddie's arts and crafts from Hell Collection, they were feeling pretty apprehensive about going through the rest of the house, but they had to do it. They knew they had to do it. So they removed the nails and took the boards down, and there in pristine condition was a parlor and a bedroom, and other than dust, the rooms were in perfect condition. So I think we're going to leave it there for right now, and... <laughs> we're just we're just scratching the surface. So uh, we have a we have a lot more to get to with this. So uh, uh, hopefully, just in a couple of days, I have the the next episode out, uh, and we'll continue on with the Eddie Gein show. So y'all take care, be safe, and you fellers out there, you know, hit pause on the game, and go read to your kids for fifteen minutes. It'll mean the world to them. I'll talk to y'all soon.